I'm going to have us look at Psalm 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 1. If not, here it is up on the board. If you'd like a Bible, there's one up here on the front. (laughs) I'll be referring to that throughout the rest of the sermon. Okay. All right, here we go. Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Maybe you've heard a story similar to this where at a graduation ceremony, the student is asked to give a speech. They want to refer to a Bible verse or pray a prayer, and the administration tells them, no, you're not allowed to quote the Bible, you're not allowed to pray, uh, separation of church and state. And I heard of one situation where uh, the girl was the valedictorian and um, she was not allowed to, to pray. So she delivered her speech and at the end she fake sneezed, achoo, and the whole student body rose to their feet and said, God bless you. And they snuck their blessing in at the ceremony. Okay. Now, we tossed that term around, God bless you. You know, you sneeze, God bless you. Uh, you write an email, God bless you. Um, rather than saying see ya, sometimes we say God bless you. All right? Do you really know, though, what it means to be God-blessed? I call this the anatomy of the blessed man or the God-blessed man. It's a snapshot of what it means to be a blessed man or woman of God. The whole... The whole psalm is a picture of a God-blessed person. Now, um, verse 6 really gives you the heart of what it means to be blessed by God. Take a look at this. It says, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Now, let me just remind you, who, who is righteous? None of us are righteous. You become righteous when you realize you're not righteous. And rather than trying to work real hard to earn God's righteousness, you plead with Him and you say, I am unrighteous. And He brings you the gospel. The gospel is the good news that unrighteous people, without working, trust in Christ. They, they admit they're sinners. They turn from their sin. They trust in 
Christ who died for them on the cross. And at the cross, you are made righteous. How does that happen? Your sin is transferred to the cross. His righteousness is given to you, and you now have the status of righteousness. He not only gives you that status, but he changes your heart, and you start to behave in a righteous manner. But, but your acceptance is not based on your performance. Your acceptance is based on what Christ has done for you. Those are the righteous. Now, the great thing is that if you are in Christ, this applies to you. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Now, what, what this is saying is, and, and sometimes this can happen, sometimes you can think that Becoming a Christian is all this accounting transaction. Your sin is transferred to the cross. His righteousness is given to you. And on the books of heaven, you're going to heaven. And it's all very cold and calculating. When you become a Christian, God also changes your heart. He changes your relationship with him. You are adopted into his family and dearly loved. And what this says is he watches over your way. The picture that comes to mind with me is Mama Duck here. Watching over the little brood of ducks. We're these dumb little ducks here, okay? And our confidence is in Mama Duck watching over us, taking care of us. Dearly loved. But God is not a Mama Duck. God is the all-powerful, all-wise, all-caring God of the universe who broods over us and takes care of us and watches our way. That is blessed. That's what it means to be God-blessed. And I would hope every one of us would say, that's what I want. That's who I want to be. Right? Now, um, I call this the anatomy of the blessed man because this describes the state of being blessed by God. Now, verses 4 and 5 say, you know, this is not true of the wicked. They're like the chaff. The wind blows them away. They're not going to stand on the day of judgment. That doesn't apply to the wicked. But the blessing applies to the righteous. Now, the first three verses, and that's what we're going to focus on, describes the actions of the righteous man, the blessed man. Now, don't misunderstand. This is not saying, do this to earn God's blessing. It's saying if you are in Christ, you are blessed, and he changes your heart, he changes your desires, and you will start to act this way, which leads to even more blessing. But it's all of grace. Now, um, there's two things that characterize the blessed man. Something he avoids and something he is drawn to. Right? We're going to take a look at that. First of all, uh, what or who does he avoid, then what or who is he drawn to? So let's take a look, first of all, at what he avoids. It says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, counsel in this context doesn't mean, you know, like the student council, a group of people who gets together. This is talking about the advice of the wicked. All right, so... Jesus says there's two paths. There's the broad path that leads to destruction. There's the narrow path. All right? the, uh, the righteous, blessed person is on the narrow path. 
the wicked veers over into the broad path. And he's starting to listen to the advice and the counsel and the schemings of the wicked. So he's being influenced by the wicked. And the, the righteous man, then, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. Now this guy's stopping. And he's seeing how people behave. And he's being influenced by their actions. And then the last thing we see, or sit in the seat of mockers. The ungodly mock the things of God. They're sarcastic. They make fun of, of the righteous people. He's now sitting down and joining in. The wicked person has been sucked into the peer pressure of the world. But the righteous, the blessed man, doesn't walk in the way of the wicked. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and he doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. The blessed man is characterized by avoidance, avoiding wicked people and wicked advice and wicked choices. All right? Now, at this point, some people are going to go, yes, I've found my life verse because I don't like hanging around those wicked unbelievers. I have found my life Verse. You know, there are times I will do a sermon on evangelism. Saying, come on, get out there. Rub shoulders with unbelievers. Get to know them. Love them. Invite them to church. And there are people who say, I don't know any unbelievers. I don't have any significant relationships with unbelievers. And a lot of people, would, if they were honest, would say, and I like it that way. Because they have dirty mouths. They live a lifestyle that just disgusts me. So all my relationships are with Christians. So schedule is this. Sunday, church. Monday, men's group, women's group. Tuesday, godly golf. Not, not just golf, but godly golf. It's with other believers. Right? Um, that was, what, Tuesday, godly Wednesday, biblical bowling. It's another ministry of the church, you know, biblical bowling, right? Um, Thursday, fellowship fishing, right, with it. You know, there is an, actually a Christian anglers society where just Christians get together and they fish and they, they actually only catch Christian fish. They only, they only fish for angel fish, right? Ooh. <laughs> you know, at high schools today, they have... Fishing, it's not fishing clubs, it's competitive bass fishing. I saw this on the thing at Batavia the other day. Who are you competing against, another school or the bass? <laughs> and every sport needs cheerleaders, so, you know, cast that line. Cast that. And the fishermen are like, shh. But I digress. All right, so so there, there are people who... And, and I'm, you know what, is it, is it wrong to have a Christian fishing club or a Christian this club or that? No. You know, there are people who are so into the world, they need a break from all the pagan revelry, and they want just to go hang out with Christians and do something fun. Nothing wrong with that, unless, unless we have created a Christian cocoon where our, our main motive is comfort comfort, where I don't like the uncomfortable language they use. I don't want, I'm just going to insulate my life from the evil world 
by hanging out with Christians all the time. Now, the problem is Jesus. All right, the example of Jesus. Jesus, who hung out with unbelievers so much that he gained a reputation for being a drunkard and a glutton. Right? He was criticized all the time. They said, why do you do that? And what was his, his response? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. If I have a cure for their disease, I, it would be sinful for me not to go out there and give them the cure. And yes, it is sinful that if God has placed you in this country with so much resources and, and, and godly resources and godly opportunities to share that with people, and if we say, no, I'd rather just hang out with my Christian friends, we are being disobedient. Okay? In fact, in Luke 15, Jesus is criticized for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And it's the church people who are sitting there saying, he can't be of God if he hangs out with those people. So Jesus goes on and gives not one, not two, but three parables to say, get out there in the world and hang out with unbelievers. First of all, he tells the parable of the lost coin. And in this parable, there's a woman who represents God. Yes, God represents is represented by a woman in this case, okay? She has ten coins. She loses one. What does she do? Does she go, oh, well, I got nine. Forget, forget the lost one. No, she searches the house. She sweeps the house. She finds the coin, and when she finds the lost thing, she rejoices and had a, has a party, spends the other nine on the party celebrating that she found the one, right? But what is that a picture of? That's a picture that God rejoices when the lost are found. And Jesus is justifying the fact that he is out on a search and find mission. And you should be that way too, not like the Pharisees who hung out in the holy huddle. Right? Then he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Shepherd, shepherd represents Christ, has a hundred sheep. One little baba black sheep goes away, strays away. And rather than hanging out in the security of the flock... The shepherd goes out looking for him. And when he finds the sheep, there's rejoicing. And Jesus says there is rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents and finds salvation. And then he tells the story of the prodigal son. The son tells dad. Now, in this case, dad is the father. God is the father. The son is us. We tell God to go jump in the lake, give us our stuff, give us our inheritance, and we will go live our own life. That's us. That's all of us who has turned our back on God. But then he comes to repentance after eating the pig slop and he smells of, of pig stuff. And as he's coming home, the father who's out looking for his son every day over the horizon, he sees him. And when he sees the son, what does he do? Does he say, uh, first of all, you need to grovel. And then would you please go take a shower because I, I can't stand the way you smell. No, the father runs to the son, embraces him, and has a party to celebrate. What's the point? God loves finding the lost. And the point is, in your face, Pharisees, for hanging out in your holy huddle, don't criticize me. I am just reflecting the heart of God who loves to go on search and find missions and rub shoulders with unbelievers and love them and bring them into the kingdom. Now you go, okay, that's all great, but I'm confused. I thought the point was that the blessed man doesn't hang out 
with sinners. And Luke 15 seems to say that the godly man does hang out with sinners. Do you or don't you avoid unbelievers? I'm confused. Well, here's where some thinking needs to go in. Uh, Whenever two verses seem to contradict one another, you know they can't because God is perfectly consistent. So what do you do here? You say, hmm, maybe the avoidance that this is calling for is not physical avoidance, but what I call influential avoidance. In other words, you're not to pull out of the world totally and have no contact with unbelievers. What you are to avoid is the influence that can destroy your walk that they can have upon you. So when people ask me, Pastor, should we homeschool? Should we send our kids to a Christian school or public school? What's the right thing for a Christian to do? Okay. I think the answer to the question is another question. Who is influencing whom more? Right? Is the, uh, are, are your kids able to stand strong and be a light shining in the darkness? Or will they be influenced and sucked in? Who has more influence on whom? And you know what? I think it changes from kid to kid, school to school, year to year. We're actually thinking of homeschooling now. Okay? Is that... The, oh, so you're endorsing... I am... I'm endorsing asking the question, who is influencing whom? More. I think you have to ask that with all your relationships. It's too easy to pull out and come up with a legalistic rule. You have to weigh the influence issue. All right? So... Here's what I would say. I think it's wrong to use Psalm 1 to justify a Christian cocoon lifestyle. The motive of Psalm 1 is not your comfort or fear of the world. The motive of Psalm 1 is righteousness. I think it's just as wrong to use Luke 15 to justify hanging out with certain uh, unbelieving friends so you can join in their unrighteousness. You know, sometimes you hear that. Well, why do you hang out with those people? Well, I'm doing evangelism. No. <laughs> uh, may, maybe that's your excuse, but your life has been destroyed since you've been hanging out with those people. So, some of you today need to be challenged to get out of the cocoon and have more influence on your unsaved friends. Others of you need to be challenged to cut off, at least influentially, the influence that some people are having on you because they're dragging you away from the Lord. All right, now, I think that's a balanced view here. Now, let me focus, though, on this idea. The avoidance of being influenced by the ungodly. Now, this verse is typically applied to marriage, but I think it can be applied broader than marriage. Paul says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now the yoke, you know, was that big wooden thing they put on top of an oxen and they stuck their heads in and they were trapped together. So the yoke, clearly marriage would be one of the things that this is referring to. 
but you could actually be yoked with your heart to friends, to business partners, uh, anything that binds you to an unbeliever. Well, why shouldn't we be yoked? For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? The reason you shouldn't be, be yoked with the spiritually dead person is because they will always drag you down. Right, let's picture a, a living ox and a dead ox. The dead ox is going to drag the living ox down. Right? So, um, clearly, the first application is, if you're a Christian and you're dating a non-believer, what are you thinking? It's just going to drag you down. Oh, but he'll come to the Lord or she'll come to the Lord later. Can't guarantee that. But I think you can apply this even further to friendships. Right? Solomon by the way, Paul's conclusion is, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Solomon had a thousand wives. Okay, insert your own joke here, right? King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. There is something about love that weakens your defenses and you will compromise. You ever notice two people get married? Most often they compromise on their political values, their spiritual values, their, you know, whatever, they become one. That's the way it's intended to be. And Solomon loves these pagan women. Right? Nevertheless, Solomon held Fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as his God, uh, Lord as God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. So here's the question. Are there some relationships in your life where you need to distance yourself? Maybe not physically, but influentially. You need to distance yourself from them because they're dragging you down spiritually. Right? And then a follow-up question to that is, what small group are you going to get involved in? So you have spiritual fellowship and Christian influence in your life. So it's not just you versus the world. Right? The godly person, the, the blessed person, practices avoidance because he knows that his heart can be led astray. Right? Now, let me, give you, let me give you the second characteristic. He, he, he uh, distances himself from ungodly influence, but he delights in godly influence. And where do you go for godly influence? But, he, uh, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, that word law can mean the Ten Commandments. It can mean 
um, any commandments in the Old Testament. It can also mean the entire Old Testament. And it can also mean just any revelation from God. And I think in this context it means God's revelation. In other words, but his delight is in the Bible. And on the Bible he meditates day and night. Blessed is the man whose delight is not in the counsel of the wicked, but in the counsel of the Lord, as found where? In the Bible. Now, key word, key word is this word meditates. It's not enough to read it. It's not enough to have it preached at you, though you need the Bible preached at you. It's not enough to study it. It's not even enough to meditate on it. The blessed man, did I say meditate or memorize? It's not, a, <laughs> it's not enough to memorize. You've got to go to the further step of meditate on it. Okay? What is meditation? Meditation is when you take a biblical truth and you think about it. You know, some of you see me walking around like I walk my brother's dog or I'll be out walking and you go, oh, it must be nice being a pastor. Just enjoy it. You know what I'm doing? I'm working. I spent a lot of time this week doing meditating on how do you synthesize Psalm 1 with Luke 15? How do you fit that together? And what about my life? How, you know, where am I being negatively influenced? And where am I being positively? And how, how do you fit? And that's called meditation. When, uh, when you take the truth and you don't just go, oh, I've got it. No, you go, how does it fit with other scripture? And how does it fit in my life? And, you, uh, and In fact, I understand that the Hebrew word for meditation was translated into Latin. And that Latin word is the same word that's used for a cow chewing on cud. You know, or you had a dog, you know, you give a dog a bone, he starts chewing on that bone, he will not let it go until he gets every, every little flavor out of that bone. That's what you're doing. You're taking the scripture and you're, you're gnawing on it and you're thinking about it. And, and uh, it's not just reading it. You know what? Some people say, I've read the Bible all my life and it hasn't transformed me. You're not meditating on it. That's why, you know, I kind of laugh when they come out with, the uh, five-minute devotional Bible. Five minutes in a day will change your life. No, it won't. I'm not going to lie to you. Until you are a meditator on Scripture, one who in every spare moment is just thinking about Scripture and mulling it over and trying to figure out how do I apply it, you're not going to be transformed. Right? The, men's, uh, the busy man's devotional Bible. What? If you're too busy to meditate, it's not going to transform you. Okay? Now, here's the problem. We Americans own more Bibles than anybody in the world. We even have Bibles that we leave laying around. You know. Have I mentioned that there's a Bible up here? Okay. Now, we've got Bibles. Now, we've got... Shame. shame. Everybody, boo, hiss. <laughs> We, we not only have Bibles, but we have different versions. So we got your NIV and your King Jimmy and your New King Jimmy and your NASB and your ESV and your New Living. And the, 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 the. And, uh, do you ever feel overwhelmed? It's kind of hard to memorize it when you've got 27 versions. By the way, you go, 
why do you put the scriptures up here? That's going to discourage people from, from bringing their Bibles or they may leave their Bibles. Um, isn't that discouraging? No. The reason I put that up here is because if we were to just pile up our Bibles, we'd all have about five or six different versions, and I need to read off of one so we're all on the same page. Okay? But bring your Bibles. Don't leave them laying around, though. Okay? Um, now, we have an overwhelming amount of Bibles. We have access online to commentaries. We're in a flood of biblical information. But amassing information is not the same as meditation. You get that? Amassing information is not the same as meditation. Let me, uh, let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus speak in parables? Now, the easy answer is, well, because he was a great communicator. And great communicators know that people love stories. And he communicated with stories so people would get it. That's not what he said. He said exactly the opposite. I communicate in parables so those who who are not being drawn won't get it. What? Yeah, Matthew 13, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in Parables. He replied, because great communicators know that people love stories. That's why I tell stories. No. He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you. You who are following and seeking and asking questions and want to meditate on the things of God, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. This is why I speak to them in parables. Now he quotes from Isaiah 6. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. There's a kind of hearing where you hear it and it's wah, 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 wah. It goes in one ear and out the other. There's a hearing that perceives and understands and then there's just a hearing that doesn't understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, wah, 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 but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Folks, I believe that we live in a day and age when this prophecy is being fulfilled. In Amos 8.11, the days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You say, well, we hear, no, we hear, but what we hear is wah, 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 because we don't meditate. Hearing this sermon will not change your life unless you meditate on the word of God. Okay? So here's my question. What radical thing do you need to do to your schedule so you have time to meditate on the word of God? Time's a ticking. Life is going by. We have time for football. We have time for TV shows. We have time for movies. We have time on the Internet for everything but the one thing which will truly transform us. Okay. Now, last thing, I'll just hit this quickly. The um, blessed man avoids ungodly influence. He delights in godly influence. And he prospers he prospers. He's like a tree 
planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. Now here you go, oh, wait a minute, I thought you said the prosperity gospel was bad. Here we are promised prosperity in whatever you do. Well, here again, let's meditate on that word prospers. Can the prosperity teachers take it and say, yes, become a Christian and Jesus will make you healthy, wealthy, and happy and everything you do will flourish and there will be no problems. Now, that's what they do. But you have to compare that with the rest of Scripture, with Jesus who had no place to lay his head, with Jesus who said, you will be persecuted, with the apostles who were all martyred and tortured for their faith, with Paul who in the book of Acts just goes from one town to the next being beaten up and imprisoned and whipped and left for dead. How does that fit with this? Well, again, maybe there's different kinds of prosperity. Now, in the context here, notice he's just coming off a plant analogy. The blessed person's like a tree planted by streams of water. The scriptures use the plant world to talk about spiritual growth all the time. The parable of the four soils. Parable of the mustard seed. Okay? Galatians, the fruit of the spirit. The, the, the agricultural world is talking about spiritual growth, spiritual prosperity. Right? Spurgeon said this about Psalm 1. It's not outward prosperity which the Christian most desires and values it's soul prosperity, which he longs for. Now, God may choose to bless you materially. Nothing wrong with that. But what the spiritual man longs for is to flourish and prosper spiritually. How do you do that? Let me close with this. I like to pull this out once a year. Paul Meyer, remember Minerith Meyer Clinics? The Christian psychologist did a study. I think he did it at Trinity Seminary where he had all the Trinity students take an MMPI test. That's the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. And that tests your mental and emotional stability. Right. Don't worry, I won't have you take it. Right. Then he also had... Um, them fill out a spiritual life questionnaire. What spiritual disciplines do you practice? And he grouped them into three groups. There are the emotionally healthy, the middle ground, okay, and then those in significant emotional pain. Now, he was hoping to prove that the longer you're a Christian, the more uh, emotionally healthy you are. We know that that's not true, though. That, that didn't, there, there was no correlation between how long a person's a Christian and how emotionally healthy they are. You know people have been Christians their entire lives, and they are not emotionally healthy, or they're not healthy people at all. But then he did find a correlation between the superiorly healthy people and those who daily meditate on the Word of God. All right? Those who have meditated on the Word of God and it becomes your lifestyle and it becomes your pattern and it takes about three years for the transformation to take place, um, those are the ones who were uh, 
filled with the Spirit, emotionally healthy. And he concludes, I'll give you the two conclusions. One, experiencing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, rather than bitterness, depression, and anxiety, are dependent upon a renewing of the mind, upon this meditation on Scripture. And then he says this, daily meditation on Scripture with personal application is the most effective means of obtaining personal joy, peace, and emotional maturity. In other words, they're the most blessed of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It's right there. It's in front of us, yet we neglect it. Lord, create in our hearts a hunger, a desire, a delight in your word. Give us the discipline to not walk in the path of the wicked, to be influenced by the wicked, yet without abandoning our responsibility to reach people for Jesus. Protect us. Give us wisdom to know how to navigate those paths. And then, Lord, as we meditate on your word and ponder it and think about it, I pray, Lord, that you would transform us. And then, Lord, what a blessing to know that you watch over us, you guide our steps. We truly are blessed. We thank you in Jesus' name.